Hello, and welcome to the second podcast, An Intelligent Look at Terrorism. I'm your host, Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. Well, as promised, I'm offering this my second podcast, two weeks after the first. I've gotten some feedback from the first, and given some thought as to how I want to rejig or reorient these podcasts, So I think one of the major changes that you'll notice in the second episode is I'm going to refrain from giving a long list of terrorist activity over the past couple of weeks, if for no other reason than I found it kind of long and, to be honest, a little bit too much. This is not to say that for those of you who will want to gain access to the transcript, I do have a list of the major terrorist and t- counter-terrorist events over the past two weeks, but I will not actually read through that entire list. So this podcast is entitled, Whatever Happened to Seek Extremism? And in some ways, for me, it's a, a bit of a trip down memory lane, as well as a look at what I think is still a significant threat and may come back to bite us in the near future. So let me take you back a long time, back to the start of my career in intelligence in 1983. I had joined Communication Security Establishment, Canada's Signals Intelligence Organization, in July of 1983 as a linguist after I graduated from the University of Western Ontario. And for those of you who are not that familiar with CSE, it is Canada's Signals Intelligence Agency. It is also one that focuses on foreign intelligence as opposed to intelligence collected within Canada. And as the name suggests, it does deal with signals as opposed to human intelligence. So back in the early 1980s, the major threat that CSE and in fact most intelligence agencies in the West were concerned about was in fact the Soviet Union and its allies. This this being, of course, still the Cold War in the 1980s. And yet, I was part of a team, a very small team at the time, about a dozen of us actually, that were looking at threats other than the Soviet Union, military, economic, um, political, etc. And one set of events that was really interesting at the time was what was happening in India. So, in 1982, a group of uh, Sikh extremists essentially took control of a sacred place called the Golden Temple in Amritsar and remained holed up there for the better part of two years. Eventually, in the Indian government under Indira Gandhi realized this is a, an untenable situation and they launched what was known as Operation Blue Star in October of 1984. They laid siege to the temple. Uh, There were a lot of deaths that came out of that. And uh, essentially it was liberated. The main terrorist, the main Sikh terrorist at the time, was a man called Jarnal Singh Bidjanwali, and he was killed during the Indian forces operation. I'll get back to Sikh extremism in a minute, but the the immediate aftermath uh, of the siege at the temple was Indira Gandhi's assassination in October of 1984. 
and she was assassinated by two of her bodyguards who happened to be Sikhs. So before we go on to an event that was very important to Canadians, very important in my early career as an intelligence analyst, let's talk a little bit about Sikh extremism. So of course Sikhs are a large ethnic religious part of the state of India and they have been keen to establish an independent homeland uh, called Khalistan, which is a Punjabi word meaning the land of the pure. So if you go back to you know, the Indian-Pakistani separation in uh, 1947, uh, Punjab was an area that was sort of caught betwixt and between the two, and the this proposed independent state of Khalistan would comprise part of India and part of Pakistan. And, and not surprisingly, uh, neither India nor Pakistan would willingly give up territory for this new independent land. In actual fact, the, the first public pronouncement or desire of the creation of this new state was took place in 1971 when an advocate named Jagjit Singh Chauhan placed an advertisement in the New York Times proclaiming the existence of this new state and collecting money to try and achieve it. Chauhan himself became the self-styled president of Khalistan, which didn't exist. He created a cabinet, and he even produced money in stamps, and even a few embassies across Europe. In the 1980s, the Khalistan movement became more militant and more violent, and estimates are that upwards of 20,000 people, including 2,000 Indian security forces, were killed, leading up to the occupation and siege of the Golden Temple in, in, in Amritsar. So why do we, in, why were we in Canada interested in what was happening uh, in India? Well, first and foremost, there is a significant Sikh diaspora in Canada, much like there are other diasporas from all parts of the world. I myself am third generation Eastern European diaspora. But we were learning that there was a militant and violent extremist fringe to this diaspora in Canada in the early 1980s. And here's where I have to introduce a little bit of a historical reminder, if you will. In 1984, in July, so around the time of the siege of the Golden Temple and prior to Indira Gandhi's assassination, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service was created out of the old RCMP Security Service. So there was a handover from the RCMP to CSIS. Um, a lot of uh, former members of the RCMP had the option of joining, resigning their commission with the RCMP and joining this new security service, civilian security service. And one of its first investigative priorities and investigative tasks was looking at the issue of Sikh extremism in Canada. Uh, I was aware uh, at, at the time, being part of CSE, of this, this investigation. We obviously uh, shared intelligence with CSIS at the time and got a sense as to what CSIS was looking at. But when push comes to shove, the intelligence community writ large in Canada failed 
and, and failed tremendously in failing to stop what became the single greatest act in terrorist history prior to 9-11. And I'm referring, of course, to the July 23rd, 1985 bombing of an Air India flight off the coast of Ireland that had originated in Vancouver with stops in Toronto and Montreal. Uh, A similar plane, another Air India flight, that was going the other way to India via Japan, landed at Narita Airport, and two baggage handlers were killed when a bomb on that flight detonated prematurely. It later became clear that the bomb on the Air India flight that crashed into the sea off the coast of Ireland had been placed there by Sikh extremists in British Columbia. And in all, 329 passengers and crew were killed. You know, I look back at this, what, 30, almost 35 years later, and it, I, I, I feel a tremendous sense of loss and, and a tremendous sense of we just didn't perform our duties to the best of our abilities because if we had, those people would still be alive and they're not. You know, when you work in intelligence, you're only as good as your last failure. Meaning that no one cares really if you're successful. You might get some kudos, you might get some attaboys, pats on the back. But when you mess up, when you when you fail to stop an organization an organization such as Islamist extremist or, or, or Sikh or whatever from successfully planning and executing an attack, it hurts. And the attack in 1985 was, was one such event. And in the aftermath, there was a lot of finger pointing. Some people said, well, you know, it's a brand new security service. They're just trying to find their feet. Mistakes were made. Those mistakes led to the death of over 300 people. Now, there were, there were inquiries. Uh, there's a massive Air India report. I have a copy of it. On my, it takes up a whole shelf on, on, in my library upstairs. But at the end of the day, um, we didn't do our jobs. So you might think that, you know, this is this is a historical moment. We had the inquiry. We had the lessons learned. We became a better security service. And, and all of that is true. And so you may be faulted for thinking, well, that was then. What about now? Well, I hate to tell you this, but the menace or the threat of Sikh extremism is still with us. It may not get the headlines that Islamist extremists do, Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, Al-Shabaab, and groups like that. It may not get the same attention as the far right's getting in countries like Canada and the United States and parts of Europe. But there are still individuals within the Sikh community, both here in Canada and in India, who still are very much in favor of creating an independent Khalistan and some of those people will do so through through acts of violence. And I'm not going to enumerate the attacks that have taken place in the past two or three years in India, carried out by a number of terrorist groups. The ones that we in Canada are most familiar with was the Barbara Khalsa International, or BKI. But there's groups like the International Sikh Youth Federation, uh, the Khalistan Commando Force, the Khalistan Liberation Army, the Khalistan Liberation Force. 
And uh, if you're interested, I do list some of the attacks in the uh, in the transcript that you can you can gain access to um, if you need if you want to. So here's the problem: when you work for a security service like CSIS, um, you only have so many resources, you only have so much time, you've got competing priorities that weigh on you on a daily basis. And you simply can't watch all things at all times. Clearly, it's over the past 20 years, in the post 9-11 period, uh, Islamist extremism has, uh, ha has had the lion's share of resources from an investigative perspective. The last couple of years, we are looking more and more at the far right. Uh, there's possibly the rise of the far left or environmental extremist action in light of global warming and environmental degra degradation. And, you know, when I left CSIS, when I retired in 2015, I did not consider that Sikh extremism was a priority as far as CSIS was concerned, and, 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 and nor should it have been necessarily. But there are still individuals and i would be very surprised if some of those individuals were were living were not living in canada who are bent on achieving their independent Khalistan through whatever means possible an organization called seeks for justice plans to hold a referendum in major canadian cities in 2020 to call upon the independence of the punjab region region from india and they're going to see how this referendum goes and to see perhaps they can take it to the United Nations. Now, I'm not equating a referendum with violence. Okay. As a, you know, one thing that we have to accept is that there are individuals, there are groups that are very much in favor of having certain goals and carrying out certain actions as long as they're peaceful. But here's an interesting quote from the late 2018 Public Safety Canada annual report, annual threat report. And I'm gonna I'm gonna cite it at, at length because it, it's 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 interesting for what it says and, and I'll and I'll weigh in on this. Here's a section on Sikh extremism. Quote Some individuals in Canada continue to support Sikh brackets Khalistani extremist ideologies and movements. This political movement aims to create an independent homeland for Sikhs called Khalistan in India. Violent activities in support of an independent Sikh homeland have fallen since their height during the 1982-83 period when individuals and groups conducted numerous terrorist attacks. The 1985 Air India bombing by Khalistani terrorists remains the deadliest terrorist plot ever launched in Canada. While attacks around the world in support of this movement have declined, support for the extreme ideologies of such groups remains. For example, in Canada, two key secret Sikh organizations, Babar Khalsa International and the International Sikh Youth Federation, have been identified as being associated with terrorism and remain listed terrorist entities under the criminal code. Unquote. Now, this was an interesting addition to the public report because it had been the first time in, in quite a number of years in which the Canadian government elected to include Sikh extremism on its list of terrorist threats. And when the report came out, uh, the reaction from Canadian Sikhs was harsh. 
They accuse the government of capitulating to the Indian government and maligning Sikh, Canadian Sikhs with baseless allegations of violent intent. Now, bear in mind that India uh, is dealing with Sikh extremism directly and has pressured Canada in the past to cooperate on intelligence sharing on possible support for Sikh violence within Canada. And of course, we can't forget the rather embarrassing moment during Prime Minister Trudeau's recent trip to India in which uh, one of the members of the delegation was a man called Jasper Lotwal, who was a Canadian Sikh convicted of trying to assassinate a visiting, Canadian, a visiting Indian politician to Canada in 1986. So, so what does all this mean? Well, there's no question that Sikh extremism remains a potential threat, especially in India and to a lesser extent in Canada and other parts of the diaspora. Complicating matters is the rise of Hindu extremism within India. I wouldn't say supported, but let's say tolerated by the Modi government. And I have an entire chapter on Hindu extremism in my forthcoming book, When Religions Kill, which should come out later on this year. But I think there's a lesson to be, to, to, to be learned here. And the lesson is, is that terrorist movements don't disappear all that easily. If you think about terrorism, terrorism is the use of violence to gain some kind of a political, ideological, or religious goal. And the fact that a small number of Sikhs are willing to use violence to further their goal of an independent Khalistan, Khalistan has not been created, the goal has not been achieved, why is it that we think that this particular extremist movement is going to die off completely? I mean, we're still dealing with Irish extremism. There was a, a few bombs in Northern Ireland just this week alone. They didn't, no one was hurt, but the Irish cause and, and violence to, to gain, you know, independence for the northern counties, uh, reunification with the, with the Republic of Ireland, has been going on for a century. So I think that we need to remind ourselves when it comes to violent extremism and terrorism that if the goals of the, of the terrorist movements are not achieved, the use of violence to further their causes may never, in fact, go away. One last point on, on this issue of Sikh extremism in Canada. And a loss been made of this in the Canadian media. The current leader of the NDP, the New, the New Democratic Party in Canada, Jagmeet Singh, who is a Canadian Sikh, was asked by a veteran uh, CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation reporter, Terry Malewski, to denounce Sikh terrorism when he was interviewed by, by Terry on Power and Politics, which is a flagship CBC uh, news show. In all honesty, uh, Mr. Singh's response was less than stellar in that he tried to evade the answer. He wouldn't condemn the uh, the fact that today in Canada, uh, in certain Sikh temples or Gurdwaras, that the photos of some of the, of the men accused in the Air India bombing in 1985 are, are still up on, on the walls, and these men are treated as heroes by some, and I, I stress some, a very small number, within the Canadian Sikh diaspora. 
And if you want to see a great, the interview itself that Mr. Malevsky does with Mr. Singh, I've got a link to it uh, in the transcript. So again, I think that what I want to leave you with um, from this podcast is this notion that be really careful when declaring a terrorist movement or a terrorist cause over. Sikh extremism is just one example. Uh, in next week's podcast, we'll talk about Islamic State and the fact that it's declared dead. Um, far from true. Now, as I noted at the start of today's podcast, I'm going to change the format a little bit. Um, I'm not going to list all the terrorist attacks. They are available in the transcript. But I'm going to talk about a particular terrorist phenomenon, if you will, uh, every two weeks, every fortnight, that I find interesting. And this week I want to focus on Thailand. So let's start with what you know about Thailand. And if I were to ask you what are the characteristics of this Southeast Asian nation, I'm sure you talk about the beaches, um, the really impressive Buddhist temples. Um, it's not for nothing that Thailand is a very popular tourist destination. Yeah, it's true. The military has far too much power and there's been a lot of coups. But aside from that, it's a pretty nice place, right? Well, how many of you would know that, in fact, there has been an Islamist extremist insurgency in the country's southern three provinces that's been going on for decades? I bet you didn't know that, right? The three provinces that border Thailand's uh, border with Malaysia, Patani, Naratiwat, and Yala, sometimes a fourth province called Songkla is, is put into that mix, are pre predominantly Muslim. And way back in history, they used to make, make up the former Patani Sultanate and only became part of Thailand in the early 20th century. The residents are, as I say, are predominantly Muslim and they don't feel Thai, whatever that's supposed to mean. They are very far away from the, from the capital in Bangkok. Since 2004 alone, more than 6,500 people have been killed in the southern provinces, the vast majority of them have been civilians. Now, there have been a number of insurgent groups, terrorist groups, violent extremist groups that have been involved in the fighting. And the best known is called the BRN, or the Barisi Revolusi Nacional, although it too has a bunch of splinter groups. Another group is called the Patani United Liberation Organization, or PULO. Thai officials have denied that Islamic State has an affiliate or presence in the region, although there are reports that at least three men from Malaysia who had links to Islamic State had visited uh, this part of Thailand. So why am I talking about Thailand in this podcast? Well, aside from the fact that it is a violent campaign that's been going on for decades and resulted in the deaths of thousands and is not well known because people don't talk about it, He's come back with a vengeance in late 2018 and 2019. Um, so far, damages have been light, casualties have been light, but there have been a few incidents as of late uh, that are really quite worrisome. In on January the 10th, terrorists disguised as army troops killed four defense volunteers at a school in Patani. The police later killed two of the terrorists. And on January the 18th, four monks were killed in a Buddhist temple by 
Islamist extremists who opened up fire with automatic weapons, killing the Temple Abbot and three others. And the Thai government has been responding to this latest upsurge in violence with an increase in troops and is even deciding to ordain some of its soldiers into the monkhood to protect the Buddhist temples from these Islamist extremists. So here is a slowly simmering conflict that's been going on, has showing no signs of going away. If you're interested in learning more about this particular conflict, I would recommend that you cite a few sources. One is that I have a chapter or part of a chapter on Islamist extremism in Thailand in my third book, The Lesser Jihads. There's also a really good webpage uh, that's part of a Thai newspaper. It's called the Southern Thai Watch, and I have links to it uh, in the transcript to this podcast. So that's it for podcast number two. I hope you enjoy it. I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Ways in which you can reach me are via email, borealisrisk at gmail.com. You can go to my webpage, www.borealisthreatenedrisk.com. You can reach me on Twitter at Borealis Saves, on LinkedIn, or on Facebook. I'll talk to you again in a fortnight. Until then, stay safe.